0: The show was amazing. Over 21 million people, and this was the time before CARS, 21 million people came to that show in Chicago. One of the features of the World Fair was something called the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives from the world's religions were, met, were asked to meet and to share their mutual philosophies and to come up with a new religion, to try and take what was best, to talk, to debate, and come up with a new religion. Understandably, some Christians in the city of Chicago were incredibly angry about this. They wanted to organize a protest against the World Fair and against the actual event itself. And at the time, they sought out a famous uh, evangelist at the time, probably the most famous evangelist of that time, an uh, um, evangelist in a speech called D.L. Moody. And they sought him out and tried to persuade Moody to speak out against this event and to denounce it as something that was ungodly, that was terrible, and to be rejected. But Moody refused to go on the attack. Instead, what he did he went and rented the theaters and different uh, other places on the streets in the whole of the city of chicago and set up preaching posts with preachers and evangelists and he said this i'm going to make jesus christ so compelling that all men will turn to him today we live in an increasingly pluralistic age, where we live in a marketplace of different religions and different faiths, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, growing number of agnostics, new atheists, secularists, different types of sects that people are involved in. So what should we do in this marketplace as Christians? How do we place ourselves in all this new marketplace? How should we, the followers of Jesus, respond to all the other traditions? Should we go out on the attack and say, they've got it all wrong? Should we rail against those other religions? We're doing this series on the book of Colossians and we're in the second week this week. And Colossians is a big picture book in the Bible. Has a very big worldview in which Paul gets us to see that we need to see take off our human glasses and put on God's glasses. These are the same ones. I did think about going to town to get some God glasses uh, to try. And see. he so said, basically, take off your human glasses, put on God's glasses, and try and see and get to see the world God's way. That's what you need to do. And like all other cities uh, in the Mediterranean at the time, Paul is writing to this group in Colossae and in Paul's time, there were numerous gods. There were numerous goddesses who were worshipped at Colossae. We've got evidence through archaeology of different coins that have been found in Colossae with different images of different gods that were worshipped there. The god of Isis was worshipped there, the Ephesian Artemis, the Lady Zeus, and the Helios. Paul is speaking. A, a multi-belief, multi-complicated situation. It's just not a mono situation. But Paul's method of dealing with this, to dealing with this spiritual pluralism existing in the city of Colossae, was to focus on the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is so big. Jesus is so great. Jesus is so amazing. He is so wonderful that others will turn to Christ for salvation, because he is the true God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't engage in honest debate with all sorts of different opinions, different views, different things that are part of our society. I'm not arguing that. But the basic pattern of the church throughout the ages is in dealing with being in a kind of competitive in, a, in a, an environment that isn't necessarily as receptive to Christ. is laid out by Paul. It's also laid out by D.L. Moody in Chicago. And it's not to spend our energies and our efforts putting others down. It's actually to lift Jesus up. That's what we're called to do, to lift Jesus up. So this morning, let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your saving grace. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes afresh this morning to your greatness, to your majesty, to your power, to your love, to your authority, your goodness. Would you reveal yourself as bigger than whatever it is we think currently bigger than you. We lift you up as the highest above all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I left you with a bit of a challenge, which was to take away a card, a Colossians card, and to pray for three people during the week. It was an amazing prayer in Colossians, and I hope a number of you have had really blessed weeks where actually people within this church, within this community, have been praying for you all week that you'd know that God was close, that God was near, that actually you lived a blessed life, forgiving, loving, full of the Spirit of God. That may not have been the case, but many others were praying that for you. Now in the passage we're looking at today, Paul speaks about the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Colossians that because Christ is supreme over all creation, Christ is supreme over all creation. He's supreme over the new creation. He's come supreme over the whole universe. He's supreme over the church. Saying Christ is sufficient for you. Christ is sufficient for you. Full stop. Christ is sufficient for you. Full stop. Jesus Christ, the claims of Jesus Christ, and the life of Jesus Christ is that big. We don't need to add anything to Jesus, which is our tendency, we say, well, Jesus plus this, plus that, plus that, plus that, plus that, and we end up adding all sorts of things to it. We don't need to add anything to Jesus Christ to be right with God. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient for us. There's nothing we need to add, there's no and to add to Christianity. So in verse 15, if you look at your Bibles, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Many of you will know that in the Apostle Paul's time, that the image of the Roman Empire was literally plastered everywhere in the society. Image of the Roman Empire was in the marketplace, it was on the coins, it was in the gymnasiums, it was on paintings. Caesar, the Roman Empire, was sovereign. Actually, Caesar was actually called Lord. That's the context in which Paul is writing. And for us, I would argue that we are confronted on a very daily basis by a new empire, the new empire of marketing consumerism, where we're bombarded by images throughout the day that dominate our imaginations, that shape our imagination, shape our minds all the time. We're bombarded by the latest government campaign, bombarded by the latest tweets or Instagram or Twitter or whatever else it is that you follow or the various advertising that you're following. We're bombarded by images. So my question this morning is this, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? What do you do with all those images that go through your mind through the week? What do you do with all the corporate images that we see all the time? What do you do with the violent images that you'll see all the time? What do you do with the pornographic and sexual images that bombard our culture? What do you do with that? Does it stay in your minds? Paul says, fill your imagination with Christ. Fill your imagination with Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. Let his image, Christ's image, Christ's reality dominate your mind and your heart. There's no image in this world that promises satisfaction, can make you more satisfied than Jesus Christ. There's no image that promises fulfillment, that can make you more satisfied, fulfilled than Christ. There's no peace that can bring peace like Christ. Or security, whatever it is you're putting your hopes or your dreams in, or the image you're aiming for, none of them can deliver for your life like Christ. Because why? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the source of every gift. Who is this Jesus Christ? Fully God, fully man, one Lord, one Messiah. Well, focus on Christ. Now Paul is also rooting his statement, we'll see here, about the firstborn of all creation that you see in verse 15, solidly in the old New Testament, sorry Old New Testament, Old Testament Jewish thought. So bear in mind that Jacob was given the rank of firstborn, even though he was born after his brother Esau. Joseph was given the rank of firstborn, even though in the birth order he was 11th in the family. Jesus Christ, says Paul, is supreme over all creation. Let's look at verse 16, what does it say? For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Literally, what Paul is saying is Jesus is firstborn because he's the one by whom all things came into being. Creation was made in and by Christ. It wasn't made just through Christ, and it was made for Christ. Paul is celebrating Jesus' supremacy by declaring that he's supreme over all creation. Why? Why does Paul say that? Why does Paul say that? Because he's saying this. Because creation was made by him, he was there in the beginning through him and for him. Jesus Christ is that big over all creation, not just the earthy bit. So what does all that mean? Let me just give an example of what I think that means, what we, Paul is saying to these Christians in Colossae. So let me say, pretend I'm not the best person to illustrate this, but let's say pretend you go and buy a piece of land and you buy a piece of land and you want to build a home. The first thing you do, allegedly, is to hire an architect to draw up uh, blueprints to actually build something on this piece of land. The architect would specify all the different things, specifications regarding how it should be built, what materials would it be built with, and how it's going to look in the end. Then, after you've got the drawings all made up, you're going to employ a builder would actually build the house for you. Pour the foundations, put the frames in, do whatever else it is to to build a house. Never built a house, but you know, Alistair, you can tell me how it's done properly sometime. And after the house has been built, you'd move into the house. The house was made for you, and you enjoyed the living room, the kitchen, the garden. And then as the, the owner of the house, you'd be responsible for maintaining the house. Why is that the case? Because this is what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ in his relationship to the whole universe. He's saying Jesus is the architect. He's the one who the mind and the blueprint and the mind that created and brought that into being. But not only the one who actually builds the universe, he's the one who created it. He didn't just in his mind, but he came about it and that enabled it to, to happen. He was the one by which the universe was made. But he's also the owner of it, and the maintainer of the universe. For as it said later on, he is in him all things hold together. Everything that has existed or will ever exist first existed in the mind of Christ, remember, from quasars to the quacks of ducks, from mitochondria to Mars, from emotions to elephants, everything exists for his glory christ is supreme so why does the apostle paul speak about thrones or powers as we'll see rulers and authorities that we see remember people in the first century were very used to to, to dealing with unseen spiritual powers there would be some in colossians who'd come out of occult backgrounds and coming to Christ, they would, be saying, in coming to Christ, they believe in the message of the good news of Jesus and leave behind that life. But they're trying to make sense of it. And Paul says, Why are you so afraid of the demonic? Christ has delivered you from the powers of darkness into the realm of those who are in him and with him. Remember that Christ is over all the powers. Christ is over all the powers. He has all authority. So many of us, um, you don't need to, for me to say this, uh, for you to know, live in bondage to fear. Fear dominates so much of our lives. Fear it may be of spiritual evil, and actually evil itself but it could just as easily be a fear of the boss who manages you fear of what the economy is going to do fear that powerful people will abuse their power and break us destroy us manipulate us control us squash us fear that tomorrow may not bring what we want we live in the constant threat of fear and very easily we become a people of fear. There's a very fine book um, entitled When People Are Big and God is Small by Edward Welch and it's subtitled Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency and the Fear of Man. The problem of having a big view of people and a small view of God wasn't just restricted to the Colossians at the time. It's also our problem. We are in awe of certain people. We put them on a pedestal, we can't upset them, we can't be honest with them, we can't relate to them. We fear them. But we don't have a corresponding awe of Christ. We have a very big view of people, but we have a very small view of God. And that leads us to some very difficult places. So this morning, I wonder who it is you fear in your life. Who is it that you fear? Are you in awe of Christ to a greater degree than that this morning? Is He your Lord and your Savior? What are people? Are the circumstances? Are the things that are way bigger in your life than Christ this this morning? Many of us think that the idea of being fear-bound and of being uh, caught up in peer pressure is something that 18 and 19-year-olds spend their life worrying about. Anybody who's got children will know that, the kind of whole thing of trying to please people all the time, not wanting to, to just fall into what everybody else is doing. But you would be amazed that actually it's just as prevalent later in life. How many of us find it difficult to say no to other people? How many find ourselves agreeing with people when actually we don't really agree with anybody, but we just nod and say so? How many find it really difficult to share our faith because we're embarrassed that people will think we're somehow weird, we're somehow a bit strange, and we don't want to be rejected, we don't want to look foolish, we don't want to stand out? so we never have the courage to share our faith. The Bible calls people-pleasing, the fear of man. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You know, we attribute tremendous power to people, and I do understand that, I do live in the real world, I see the world news. power to, we put so much hope in power, in powerful people to make us feel secure, the power in people who are going to give us happiness, the power to make us feel loved, the power for us to, to do all sorts of good things to us. But then we also find ourselves, why is it we find ourselves lying to people, trying to cover up some of the things we do or we say, or we cut corners because we're fearful of what other people will think of us. We have a big view of people, but we have a small view of God. So what does Paul say? He says, focus on the supremacy of Christ. There is no one more powerful than Christ. The only way to be delivered from our fears this morning, whatever it is that that holds us, whatever superstitions we have, whatever it is your boss might do, whatever it is someone in your family you fear privately, the way beyond that is to hold Christ above them all in awe over that as a beginning. So verse 17, as we move to verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As Rosemary said uh, at the beginning of the service, I had the privilege uh, this Monday of uh, celebrating with Rob and Joe at their wedding. And I think it was probably one of those uh, days to me, I've taken quite a, quite a lot of weddings, but this wedding in particular I read the preface to a wedding that an Anglican must read to say this is what marriage is. It's the first time probably I did that where I realized this is so far away from where our culture is going. But I also do that in the sense that as I marry someone, and the privilege of two people in front of you, and having the privilege to marry someone, that what, what, to try and do that without having Christ at the very center of all their marriage, seems to me at this time, in this age, in this season, to be a particularly difficult thing. See, what power can a young couple turn into How young power can a young couple come to that will keep their love for each other for a lifetime? In our culture, it's only Jesus. Only he has the power to hold things all together, including marriages. Even when they get broken, he's still able, if we turn to him, to see restoration and reconciliation And you may say, how can we in our church here in St. Swithins, we all come from different backgrounds, different expectations, different training, different education, different perspectives. How can we manage to hold together? How can we manage to keep walking together as a church? Who's big enough to hold this together? The answer is not me. Only Jesus enables us to be united fully. Only Jesus. And you know we live in a world that's increasingly disconnected and increasingly divided. There are so many forces that can cause us to move apart in our relationship. You don't need to, me to tell you as we look at our world to see the fragility of relationships today. But as things are shaken, as our world seems to kind of um, make things very transitory with our relationships, Paul says, remember, 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 remember. In Christ, all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. Christ has the power to hold you together. He is the great reconciler, only Jesus Christ. There is no principle, there is no power, there is no military force, there is no government, there is no ideology. There is nothing can pull our world apart other than accept Christ. Christ is the one, remember. Who architected it? Who sustains it? Who made it, and holds it all together? All the rest is fleeting rhetoric. And then verses eighteen to twenty. And he is the head of the body, of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. In a minute, we're going to share in bread and wine together, as part of celebrating all that Christ has done for us. But you can feel as a Christian sometimes that you are, that you're going this way, and the tide is coming this way. We live in a world where we're saturated, and to celebrate things in our in the media and other things, that anything that's non-religious, there's a great platform given to those who are non-religious. A few years ago, we saw all the stuff with the New Atheists, with Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens, and produced all that kind of literature. Many people engaged with them. For years, for generations, for centuries, people have been predicting the demise of Christianity. Back in 1710, The English freethinker Thomas Wollstone expressed his confidence that the religion would certainly be gone by the year 1900. Max Muller lectured in 1878 and he said this, Every day, every week, every month, every quarter, the most widely read journals seem to vie with each other in telling us that the time for religion has passed. That faith is a hallucination or an infantile disease, that God has at last been found out and exploded. Come more more modern. In the 1960s, the very well anthropological textbook and writer called Anthony Wallace wrote this, the belief in supernatural beings and supernatural forces that affect nature without obeying nature's laws will erode and become only an interesting memory. Belief in supernatural paths is doomed to die out. But Christianity, is not dying out. In fact, it continues to spread across the world. There are probably over 2 billion Christians worldwide, especially in the two-thirds world of Asia, China, India, Africa and South America. And Paul says to us, as we sit in a particular culture with the particular challenges that each of us face, face today, do not be afraid, Christian. Do not be afraid, Christian. Do not be afraid of some government campaign or a system that will stamp out the consciousness of God that is hardwired within us. We are hardwired for God. He is our creator. He is our maker. And the evidence for that is everywhere. And nowhere is the evidence for God clearer than in the face of looking at Jesus Christ. And the bottom line this morning, in the age we live in, in the face of all the challenges of our culture, in the face of the challenges of being living in a pluralistic society, in the faces of the different occult practices, of the different heresies that are about, of all the competing images that bombard our life, all the things that promise us fulfillment and end up disappointing us, of all the discussion of the death of God and of atheism, and all the discussion at the end of the Christian faith. Paul says to the Colossians, And he says to us this morning, for whatever it is that's shaking your life this morning, whatever it is that you think is bigger than Christ, don't be afraid, don't be shaken. Here is our answer. Lift Jesus higher. Lift Jesus higher in your life. Focus on how compelling Jesus Christ is. Hold him in awe for who he is what he is to you and what he's done for you. Worship him as God. Know who he is. Get to know who he is, his nature, his person, his personality. Him and him alone. He is supreme. Christ is supreme. Will you bow before him? Will you worship him? Will you acknowledge him as your saviour and as your Lord? Christ is supreme. Let's pray.